Welcome back to Place by Design. Hope you're enjoying our new intro music. You'll have to check out our next episode to hear more. But meanwhile, you're listening to a podcast dedicated to the exploration of places in which we live, why they matter, and how we plan them. This is recorded live in Southwest Michigan, and I'm your host, Garth Woodruff. So this week, Debbie Withers is my guest. She was the Dean for Student Life at Andrews University and Director of Diversity when I first met her. And we talk about place through the eyes of race and gender. She brings a very unique perspective to place that I can't wait to get into. So I hope you enjoy. Hey Garth, sorry about the delay. That's okay, how are you doing? One second, it's been a day. There we go. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. So I, I was thinking about how do I introduce Debbie, right? Mm-hmm. What are her credentials and her job? And I was like, Man, <laughs> the last three or four years, she's had so many jobs and done so many things. Yeah. I don't think I can sum it up. So how about you sum it up from you were when you and I last worked together, you were the assistant dean of family life, maybe? Student life. Student life. Yeah. And you were the uh, diversity, what's the, what was that? Oh, I don't even know. I can't, you know, it was just, it was a portion of my job. So I was doing director of diversity at the university. However, that was kind of tagged on to my full-time job as what ended up to be dean for student life. So I started off as assistant dean and then got promoted to dean for student life. And then they tacked on the diversity piece of it. Fortunately, by the time I left, we had hired a VP for diversity at Andrews. So right. that, that made me very happy. <laughs> yeah. That, that was Michael, right? Yeah. Michael Dixon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's, he is still there and charging away. Yes. Um, and I think that he, I think kind of even has his hands full right now. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, because I mean, I mean, we'll, we will get into this more, but I mean, very often in America, we think of diversity as, as kind of binary, you know, it's kind of like black and white. Sure, sure, um, sure. Sometimes it's socioeconomic, but at, but at Andrews University, one, with its very vast uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. demographics, right? And mm-hmm. the whole COVID thing, diversity is totally different now. You know, I mean, it's like, there's a lot, I think he's got a lot of balls in there because he's got, you know, sure. who, might be stuck off campus. We don't have computers. He's got people that are international students that are right, stuck right. here. Some international students that are stuck overseas. Right, right. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a handful. So you were so you were the assistant dean of student life, director of diversity, and then you moved to the East Coast to Baltimore, yep. where where I would like to go. Yeah. But they didn't offer me a job in Baltimore. And what was your gig there? I worked at a church, um, and the title of the position was outreach lead. So I worked okay. with on the pastoral staff, and they wanted to really invest in the community. So they actually used one of their pastoral staff positions to hire someone to do community engagement and outreach. Oh and wow! So I coordinated um, the church's events. Um, so you went to Baltimore, and yep. you had a full-time job, which probably is almost more like a assistant pastor type of role because it's a lot of outreach in the community, but it's a church job. So correct. Yes. Where was that church at in Baltimore? It was in the Southwest side of Baltimore. So, I mean, it was in one of the more economical, economically 
depressed areas, okay. 95% African-American community. Yeah. So the church, it's what's considered a commuter church, you know, got a very energetic, vibrant pastor, David Franklin. He's been on our campus, on university okay. campus a number of times. Okay. And um, he's actually an Andrews grad as well. And so a lot of people come from surrounding areas, even as far as DC, to go right. to the church. Um, and then they, you know, want to give back in the community, but they don't actually live in the community. Okay. So most of the church members are, are kind of commuting transplants to right. the community, but, uh, right. but they're not living there. Okay. Right. right. Interesting. And then, so then um, you came back home, air quotes, yep. right? And um, you're now working at uh, the Berrien County Courthouse. Correct. Doing... Um, so I'm a financial services supervisor. So I'm supervising a group of accountants and enforcement officers who make sure that we carry out the orders of the court, making sure people get their child support. Really? So weird. Yes. That Very is. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. And, and so you were okay doing that, even though like a year ago, or was it maybe two, um, there was a big old shooting in the courthouse and our good friend, Erica, I think was like, traumatized for a little while yeah yeah i think that's three years ago oh, okay no, oh maybe I'm so 17. I'm 17 i think it's three years ago yeah it's been so, a while yeah yeah so this will i mean this they've changed a lot of their policies and procedures here and this is one of the safest place to be I'm yeah probably so probably so so basically you've gone from one job to another giving back to the community because what you do at Andrews is a giving thing. What you did at a church was a giving thing. And really right now, uh, probably a thankless uh, courthouse job that really is based on just doing civic duty almost. Yeah. I mean, obviously we, I mean, we talk to people at, that are kind of in their, in their, um, in a bad place. Divorce sucks. And um, yeah, it's a it's just a high stress for everyone involved, um, and we have to help carry out the orders of the court, primarily to take make sure kids are taken care of. Right, right. Um, so people that are paying child support recognize, or we have to help them recognize that the money's not going in the front of the court pockets <laughs> or my right. personal pocket, but it's being distributed to the people that are taking care of the children. Yeah, um, and the people that are taking care of the children depend on that money. Yeah. <laughs> And let I've, me tell you, we get those calls every day. Oh my gosh, that is, I would, um, I don't know if it would be like the heartbreak for me or it would be the anger wanting to like change it and fix it. But um, I would feel like even though it's not like you don't have people up in your face or like there's not the same time deadline, you're not flying jets or anything like that. I would still feel like it would be a high stress job for me. No, you're just, it's just a stressful at all and maybe that's because of where i am in my life where i am in my yeah. career um the the job is got pretty clear boundaries you know so it's a 30 to 5 job maybe a little bit earlier a little bit later sometimes mm -hmm. um no one's calling or accessing me in the evenings or right. i don't take anybody's anger personally right right, right. um so to me it's you know most most people are polite, even when they're frustrated. Um, and our job here is to help them to the extent that we can. So I don't find mm -hmm. it stressful. I mean, the judge has already issued an order that says child support has to be paid. Right. And we're just carrying that out, you know. And 
I can't, you know, if, if, and I think the court here does a pretty good job of determining people's ability to pay. So it's not arbitrary numbers. I mean, they look right. at ability to pay. Right. Um, so I don't take it personally if somebody's upset. So it's, to me, it's not stressful. I think we try to help people as much as we can. We have answer questions about what the court says. So yeah, and it's just really it, nice. Yeah, and Garth, honestly, when I walk out of here at five five thirty, I'm done. And you've never had that experience since I've known you. I mean, like nope. Andrews was like student life is seven days a week. Yep. Um, church outreach is eight days a week. Right. Yep. Yep. Okay. So for me to have a job where no one's calling me. There's zero expectation of working outside of those hours. Zero right. expectation of working on the weekend. To me, this is like, I'm so excited. Yeah. Right. So, I don't think I needed it at this point in life. Um, my time in Baltimore had a little bit of stress. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> For a lot of reasons. And, and you know, I know it was, um, you know, I know we'll talk about this a little bit, but it wasn't my place. You know, Baltimore. it wasn't your place. Baltimore was not my place. I never felt comfortable there. Yeah. Um, so that caused some stress and anxiety. The job just wasn't a good fit for a whole host of reasons. Um, wonderful mm -hmm. people there. Great people. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So to be back here at home and in a job that I'm really, I mean, I have a lot to do. Don't get me wrong. And a lot of phone calls to return, but I'm not. Sure. I'm not stressed about it. So right, right. You're not working at ten o'clock at night about with it. So, mm -hmm. so then that's what caught my attention when we talked. When I said, "Hey, I want to talk to you about place and your perspective on place," um, it was in a conversation of kind of welcoming you back. And then one of the mm -hmm. things you said was, "There's no place like home." Right. And um, and I was like, "Yeah, that's it." I mean, I mean, like that's kind of. I mean, obviously you've connected to that and actually probably at, now that you've gone to Baltimore and back, you probably have a new perspective on what sure. that looks like. Um, so then what makes, what makes place for, what makes Berrien Springs place for you or Southwest Michigan Southwest place for you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about, I mean, I think there's definitely comfort in the familiar, right? Sure. You know, uh -huh. That for sure. Um, I mean, as I'm thinking about it, you know, the Midwest type of life, um, the peace and serenity of country living, fresh air, the bodies of water, you know, obviously the proximity to Lake Michigan, the rivers and, you know, all of yeah. that. I mean, Lake Michigan's a big part of life here in Southwest Michigan. Sure. Um, obviously family, um, even the weather is comfortable, you know, in the fact that <laughs> the, the weather, the unpredictability of it, you know what I mean? That's yeah. comfortable in a, in no, a weird but Away. we've we've been here 11 years and we've actually gotten to point so like when i left virginia i liked the idea of sweating through a nice white shirt out on the back porch at night now it gets to be 80 degrees and i'm like a big sissy you know and it, it only takes a little while for you just to be like no this is what it's supposed to be right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. because right now for you you know, when March hits and it's 45, 50, I mean, your down coat is ridiculous. You're not going to put that thing on. No way. No, we're like wearing, I've worn short, I was wearing shorts and it was 45 and I was outside working, which is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, but so, you were, it's a different, so it's just, it's that mentality that we have here. In it the is, right. Now. And your body adjusts to it. And then mm -hmm. like you all, all of a sudden become, whether you like it or not, or know it or not, you like all of a sudden become part of that region place yes right? right and you yeah. and you were you raised here well i wasn't here, here i wasn't raised here per se my parents 
um, we're both educators okay. and uh, teachers. And so starting from, I think maybe when I was seven or eight, maybe younger, my parents would come here every summer to go to Andrews University to take a class or two and work on their mm. teacher certifications. And my dad was working on his master's degree, you know, every summer, a couple classes at a time. So my earliest memories are coming here to Michigan as a kid. My parents would be in school and we would just kind of run wild. Oh yeah. <laughs> on the university campus down to the St. Joe river, you know, back then, you know, those are the seventies. There was where the elementary school and the academy are where apple orchards. Oh yeah. Just abandoned, not abandoned, but you know, not, we could just run in the apple orchards and grab apples. And so you know, we took swimming lessons and we were pathfinders. So the summer was very idyllic for me here in Southwest. Yeah. Michigan. Um, and then finally, when I was in seventh grade, my parents moved here, just, they said, you know, we're going to just focus full time and finish up our degrees. And, mm-hmm. and they stayed here full time for a couple of years. Then they moved away and I was able to stay with friends. So, okay. and I went to Andrews Academy and then did my undergrad at the university. But prior to that, I came here every summer. So this was always a consistent. Yeah. Yeah. A consistent happy. piece of your history. Yeah. Yeah. And a history that was just the earliest memories of that history are just freedom and nature and right. You know, like I said, idyllic children laughing and running and riding bikes and I know. going to Which... Apple Valley and getting cookies for ten cents when they opened up. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, as a kid, they were like these giant, they like the size of a plate. Of course, that's in right. my eight year old memory. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's really awesome. I mean, that's like that is ideal. Like that's the childhood you wish for every child, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And those are the you know we would go down the lake and catch tadpoles and try and make them grow into frogs and <laughs> and again we could just run free back then and there was no. It just seemed very idyllic as I look back on it. That's awesome. That's awesome. I had a very similar outdoorsy idyllic background that did clearly shape who I am. I mean, that's a great deal part of why I'm a horticulturist. And it's also a great deal, I think, why I study place to some degree, because I have a fondness or an understanding of it. And I've done a little traveling or moving around like you. And when I move, you get ripped away a little bit and you feel homesick you know and that's not a fake thing that's like a real disruption in your place connections so um for the listening audience what they can't see that i can see is that you are a black woman right yeah i i think they probably figured out that you're a woman um but probably from my voice a little bit yes (laughs) but from that point on without without having seeing eyes that's difficult so and we've there's been a lot of activity in the news and activity in our world that has kind of pushed me to say, hey, you know what, maybe you need to pivot a little bit here and there in some of your uh, audiences because you need the fullness of the story of place from everybody, right? I mean, I was three interviews in and Lonnie goes, "Uh, how many women have you interviewed? And I'm like, "Uh, none, you know, and she calls me out really quickly, which is totally good. That's what she's good Lonnie. (laughs) <laughs> it is good that I have a lot. It is really good that I have Lonnie. But um, so I find it interesting asking people about place. And I don't think I would have ever come to the point where I'd have felt comfortable enough to maybe cross a divide and say uh, and ask some questions that maybe you and I are going to talk about until recently when it becomes 
so in your face that you say to yourself, okay, silence is not okay anymore, right? It's not okay to be quiet anymore. And I can post things on my Instagram or whatever to try, but really it's time for everybody to take a little bit bigger step forward. And I've always felt like good communication and dialogue kind of like levels things. You know, you think people in Russia are horrible and then you travel to Russia and you meet people in Russia and you're like, no, they're not horrible. You know, they love their kids. Like I love my kids and they laugh, you know? So, um, so I kind of feel like what little contribution I can give is dialogue. Right. So, so you just described a beautiful idyllic childhood in place for me. You've grown up in this area. You were very happy to come home. How did, or did, both your both your race and and your and your sex right i mean it's do you think that shaped or how do you think that shaped your perspective of place here in michigan yeah i mean i think you know growing up i um didn't have much consciousness of being black or whether it's female or male okay and right. i'll just say that my um my background is caribbean my parents were from the west indies Okay. Um, my mom is my mom was Jamaican. She passed away a couple of years ago. My dad was from Guyana, which is a country in South America. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a West Indian Caribbean country. Um, and because people from the West Indies, um, black people specifically from the West Indies are the majority people in their countries. Mm-hmm. So they grow up with the majority people mindset. Um, and that's okay. probably right so um so when west indians and caribbean people come to the u.s they come with the majority people mindset which mm-hmm. is at odds with the minority mindset that black people black americans have interesting so there's some tension there and that's a, probably a whole other podcast discussion you can have the difference between west indian blacks and american blacks um so west indian black blacks again coming from a majority country majority black country have a different way of thinking about race so i was raised with very little consciousness that i'm black or that i'm different than anybody else right however it doesn't take long to be in the u.s for race racism and discrimination to slap you in the face oh nice um but fortunate you know i can have my stories along with others but i have i'm in a different place of privilege um where i don't have as many instances um but, you know, in the last, you know, as you mature and spend more time again as an adult, you know, mm-hmm. there's a more fuller understanding of my place and my place as it relates to a black woman in this country. Right. Um, absolutely. It's, it's an unfortunate, it's unfortunate because it would be great to be seven years old again and chasing tadpoles. And chasing tadpoles and, and, you know, and making entries into the Berrien County Youth Fair. And- oh, right. 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 <laughs> so, so the other thing that I think is interesting that I think is probably should be a bigger piece of the dialogue that's happening in the U.S. right now is that, I mean, this is a super, super complex issue, right? I mean, it's, it is racial. I really think there's a big socioeconomic divide in it. Um, I think it's a time thing. I think that probably the way our kids feel and respond inside of this are completely different than the way our parents respond in this environment. Um, And you kind of skated through pretty lucky. And of course you're kind of, so you're socioeconomically, you're not, um, you're not an inner city Benton Harbor 
uh, resident, you know, it's so like you were able to feel what it is to feel some of those freedoms as socioeconomic middle class, I guess. Right. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of that's around education. Again, my parents are both teachers. Um, so from the, from the time I was a little kid, so if you had a question in our household, mom or dad would say, go look up the answer in a book or in the encyclopedia. Right. So our house was very learning driven from early on. And of course, right. being teachers, books were, you know, in every room of our house stacked up everywhere. Um, right. It's just the kind of household we lived in. I, I, don't, I don't understand a room without books in it. Right, um, right. So that level of privilege in the education. So there was never there, you know, it was always assumed I would go to college and so would my siblings and right. father's still upset to at me to this day that I haven't finished my PhD. <laughs> I'm not going to get a PhD. He's like, but Debbie, you live at, you work at university. You should get your PhD. I'm like, no dad, it's not happening. Right. So that was always an assumption. So that gives you a different level of privilege as well. It does. It does. And, and it, and it takes off a barrier where like you don't, there's a barrier of questions that get removed because you don't have to say, well, can I, or should I, or will I, it's just, it's okay to be there. And, yeah. And I've decided that there's basically two kinds of elites that seem to be like floating to the surface right now in society. There are financial elites and then there are intellectual elites, you know? And so our administration in DC are right now clearly full of financial elites, very mm-hmm. little intellectual elitism going on inside the white house today. Um, whereas like, you're kind of like more on the intellectual side of things. And that education and learning is exactly like my comment about traveling to Russia. When you are informed, it like rips down some barriers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's the challenge with, okay, this is just broad generalism with um, black America. They haven't had the same educational opportunities. Right. Um, And because of systematic racism, there's not the same economic or economic economic um, opportunities as well. If you just think about, for example, how we fund our public schools, our public schools are funded by property taxes. Right. So, um, so if you look at um, redlining that was done, that kind of corralled blacks in certain areas. So of course, and they don't have the jobs, so they're not going to have the money to have good quality public schools that are going to have good quality education. So people are not going to be as well read. Do you know what I mean? Right. So, that's, you know, the part of systematic racism that as a child and a young adult, I just didn't understand. Yeah, you were, and you were lucky not to understand that, I think. I know, it was, that was great, yeah. I was raised in the South and I can, southern, more of a Southern area, right? And I can guarantee you that my, my grade school friends that um, are Black probably didn't feel that way. Um, and, and I just say that from my own white perspective, looking at how life was going on in the, in the 70s, you know, mm-hmm. in Southern Maryland and Virginia, you know, it was, um, they were very slow to adapt. So do you think that in, and I actually, I want to go back to like what you made comments about, like the school systems and stuff like that. You know what, let's just do it right now. I'm going to share with you some beautiful white privilege. Okay. It's the fact that I'm so freaking slow and I'm only catching on to some things right now, right? Mm. One of the things that I'm catching on to is how America is written through the white narrative and how 
when you study history even, it is through the white narrative and it's right. a white history. And when we talk about systematic racism, we're not it's not as simple as there is a whole bunch of people and the systems that we put in place are racist. It's the fact that the systems from 1776 that were put into place were racist and we still haven't dismantled them all, you know? And it's like, it's like our constitution was built with a white ideology, you know, um, our laws. And white male, I would say. Yes, right. Which is, no, that's great. That's why I said, you're not just a person of color talking to me today, right. but a woman of color, because I feel like that is a very, very unique position to be in in America today. Do a little Googling around, and all of a sudden I start coming across um, black male privilege, right? And it's like, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, there's, there's part of my ignorance. It's not just that there's white privilege, but there's actually black male privilege, and that has to do with their, their same kind of situation over top of the black female. And it's just, all right, so we'll just say it's effed up all the way down to the roots. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's so much effed up as it, it's kind of, it, it is what it is, right? You're, you're a man, I'm a woman. And right. I, when I worked at Andrews and when I did some, when I did diversity training, there's mm -hmm. a list of all types of privilege categories, okay. right? So for example, you're an able-bodied person, you have more privilege than someone that is not able-bodied or to use the old term, handicapped, right? Right, right, um, right, right. You are, you are a man married to a woman, you have more privilege than if you were a man married to a man or a woman married right. to a woman. Your features are more European than somebody whose features are more African, so you have more privilege. So there's a list of probably 30 categories of privilege educational level, um, economic level, um, skin complexion. Oh, also Protestant versus um, non-Protestant. That's yeah. equivalent in the United yeah. States. And we could go down these categories of privilege and we just all have to recognize that we all have privilege to some level, right? right. right. Some people right. have more than the other. It, privilege in and of itself is not a bad thing. All right. It's just, it is what it is, right? Right. But then we have to recognize that because you have more privilege than I do, doesn't necessarily. I'm not saying you're a bad perfect person. It's just saying you have more privilege than I do. Right. Okay. So then, what do you do with that? How do you use your privilege? Okay. That's exactly so right. I have more education than somebody else. I'm not a bad person. I just have more education. Right. Do I recognize that I have more education? Yes. Does that put me in a different place? Even even speech patterns are privilege. Do I sound like? A European or white person, yeah, my speech pattern is more quote unquote white than somebody that is either um, not an American right. or black American, right? right? So there's privilege in all of those areas. Um, and I think that's where I wish we could get away from just because I say you have white privilege doesn't mean I think you're a bad person. It just is you have privilege because you're right. white right. that I don't have. <laughs> that's all. Right, right. And I, I, I generally feel like really what makes it and breaks those things is how you use it or how you exert it or how you recognize it, you know? And it's like, if you're just going to be like, yeah, but I'm going to be ignorant. I'm going to fight for myself and I'm just going to move on. Then you're kind of an a-hole, right? But if you're like, yeah, I understand that I have privilege and I'm going to give some room to those around me who don't have privilege so that they can build themselves in a way or even reach a hand down, you know? 
and, and help somebody who might just need a little bit of a lift up because I can, right? Right. Um, because privilege well, is not like a pie. It's not like there's only 10 pieces of privilege. And if Debbie gets more privilege, she's going to take something away from you. And that's what the problem we have in this country right now is people think that if you're going to raise people up, that it's going to be taking something away from someone else. Well, that and is crazy yes. talk. But that's so, what you Garth. I know, but it's, but, it's, but it's like, it's like literally, it's literally the opposite. Right. And Correct. It's <laughs> but that's, but that's what you're fighting against is people that believe that if you give anything that if you provide opportunity or give anything more to people of color, minorities, immigrants, for God's sakes, that, that it's going to take away from whatever you have. Right. It's, right. <laughs> it is. I've, I've listened to some economic folk recently and one of them, I think her name is Heather McGee. Mm -hmm. Um, doesn't sound like a black lady's name, but she is, if I got her name right. And she's an economist, and she basically studies racial injustice as it is woven into economy. And she kind of breaks that down a little bit, where it's like um, the 08 crash was based on an, an early form of preying on minorities through loans. Mm -hmm. That then was, and that then was like, oh this is a really easy and it kind of trickled up into white families. Right. And mm -hmm. then next thing you know, it, the economy busts millions of white people are, it's like, it's like people don't understand that it's like racism doesn't affect one race. Racism affects absolutely everybody. Right. So we tank the economy because of some racist loans that get um, out of control. Right. I'm trying to think of the other example, but it's like, there was a couple of examples that I read where like with welfare, there's an economist that was talking about recently where it's like, you don't need to think about how much it costs to help people. You got to think about how much it costs to not help people. Right. You know? So it's like, how much is it costing us for somebody to go to the hospital that doesn't have health insurance? It's right. costing us money. Right. And it's yes. like, and, and like people are so focused on, Oh, I don't want to give a thousand dollars a month away to welfare because it's just encouraging laziness or something like that. Right. And it's like, it's like, dude you don't understand how much it's costing you not to support and lift people up so anyway it's it's a very dynamic conversation and yeah. again going back to the fact that i'm real that our country generally is really based on a white male perspective mm -hmm. we've only now had a black man in the oval office and we still haven't had a woman in the oval office mm -hmm. um i believe that black communities had voting rights before women did Right? No, no, no. I mean, women got the right to vote in 1920. So, so black people could vote, but there were so many impediments put in their way. Right. To not make it easy to vote. It wasn't until the Civil Rights Act in the 60s. In the 60s. That really made it available and easier to vote and participate in our democratic. Right. So system. that means that like over the last 60 years is the only real time frame that the black voice has been heard in the vote and we know that it takes way longer than that for, for it to become actually part of a culture so we free slaves in 1860s or whatever which means that now men black men can vote because they're free except for they start putting in stupid rules like well we want to make sure um well we don't want voter fraud right so we're going to put pieces in place so you can only yeah. vote if if your dad voted Right. And it's yeah. like, well, my, my dad was a slave and he couldn't vote. And it's like, so like it, it was basically constantly 
clawing, clawing at this, right. this expansion of a black community in our country, right. never letting it up and out. Right. You know, you know, I mean, I don't know how you, who, who you can pin it on, but you know, U.S. is founded on fear of black people. So, yeah. And that, and, and that has been bred into all of our DNA. If you're American, it, it's right, been bred it is. into how you deal with it, you know, differs from person to person and group to group. Um, but there is that fear, overarching fear that causes, you know, extraordinary policing, yep. <laughs> you know, redlining, you name it. Gerrymandering, all of it. Yep. The whole thing. So uh, I'm going to tell a personal story and I hope that I don't get it too terribly wrong and you're not mad at me, but we, um, were in a seminar together quite a few years ago and it was about implicit mm -hmm. bias. Um, mm -hmm. and you were at that point running maybe the H pack, you had some involvement where you're doing some interviews. So you had kind of done your homework ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Right. And you had taken some of those online tests on implicit mm -hmm. bias yep, yep. and we, and you and I sat down together. Um, we went into the auditorium and it was just the two of us. And you're like, dude, have you taken any of these tests yet? And I'm like, no, because he was going to do it live in the audience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you're like, you're like, I think that I'm a racist and I'm afraid of black people. Right. <laughs> and, and I, and the, and it was exactly that basically, just like you said, it's been bred into us as Americans, not just as necessary. Right. And, right. and black Americans are bred to be afraid of other black Americans. It's the same. Right. Talk about the self-hate you hear talk about in the community. Um, we're bred, and I, bred's not the really right word. Right, DNA conditioned, conditioned, conditioned to be afraid. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, from that time on, I've been very intentional about my interactions with other people, right. especially people of color. Um, well, we do the same thing, like with Asians. We assume they're smarter, and and. There are statistics about how, like, if there's a room full of people and there are Asians in the room, whites in the room, um, people of color in the room, First Nation people in the room, um, we size ourselves up. And so, like, even though white privilege has privilege, we will still, in our own mindset, say, oh, the Asians are going to get better grades and we'll actually do worse on testing just because of competition and fear, right? Yeah, right. What is it in our in our human body that does that. Well, you know, I mean, kind of going back to, you know, to your sense of place, you know, I mean, we look for the familiar, we look for the comfortable, we look for what we're accustomed to. Right. Um, and unless you spend time with people of all types, you're familiar with your own kind. Right. You know, the whole birds of a feather flock together kind of statement. Right. I think that's one of the values of working on the Andrews University campus or our students because they obtain an immediate familiarity with people of all over the world. Right. You know, I right. mean, so, you know, obviously if you work at Andrews, you get really, or if you're part of that culture or most institutions of higher education that have good diversity, you learn the different types of, you know, it's not just Asians, you know, there's Koreans right. and Filipinos and they're very different people. Let me tell yes, you. Yes, right. right. So you, you learn that through exposure. Um, and so that's what education gives you in terms of, um, books and this exposure to people from different places. So, right. 
And if you're from a place where the um, driver's license rate is about 25% of the community and you're not really mobile, you're only going to know what's within your circle. And what's within your circle is going to be poverty and probably very uh, a monolithic race environment. Correct. Yep. So do you, do you see, is there, do, do you think or see, or can you share how you think maybe your race or even being a woman affected your own career path? Did that shape it at all or, or no? Well, I mean, you know, it may have had some influence. I think, again, when you come back to privilege, um, so I'm a black woman, but I'm also a light skinned black woman with more European features. So that gives me privilege over a dark skinned American black woman. Um, because of my upbringing being a West Indian, um, my language and speech patterns are more American, so to speak. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm a black person that white people are more comfortable to be around. If that makes any hmm. sense to you, right? Sure. So you're a black person that white people are more comfortable to be around? Yes. How, how does that feel when you're around black people? Or um, I should say more traditional African-Americans, you know, maybe a little darker skin, maybe from an urban setting that has a little bit of a lingo or, you know. Yeah, yeah. well, you, you code switch. So if I'm speaking to a black, black person, my, my um, speech patterns change. It's called code Dude. switching. So, so there's an actual name for that? Yeah, code switching. So I'll speak to a black person very differently than I'm speaking right now to you. Well, I'll try not to be offended by that. Well, I mean, you don't, you don't have to. I mean, I don't even think. I I'm, do the same thing. I go to Virginia and I walk into a Walmart and all of a sudden I don't sound like a normal Midwestern white correct. guy. I, I have an accent and my wife busts my balls on it. It's, but it's not, it's not intentional. It's just you're going back to what you know and you're, how you're going to interact with that group of people. Yeah. So I listen to N NPR and um, I think it's, it might be fresh air. I can't remember who, anyway, there's a, there's a, a black radio guy and he does the exact same thing when he has a guest on that is from maybe, you know, a black community or something like that. Immediately he code switches, right? Yeah, um, sure. I have a hard time not being a jerk about that, even though I do the exact same thing. It's such a funny thing. So then what you're saying is um, because of your privilege, white environments are more comfortable with you in their environment. And when you're in a black environment, you code switch and, and there's really not that much of a discomfort. No, not any longer. Not any longer. No. I mean, I would say when I, in my early twenties, I was probably more uncomfortable, but not now. Um, life has a way of just forcing I'm black. It's obvious. So right. um, I'm, I'm white and, and I, and it's, and I'm guilty about it because I mean, we've sat in meetings where I said the problem is old white men, right? I've said that in meetings with you yeah. at, in leadership roles. Right. Yeah. And in my mind, I'm going, one day I'm going to be an old white man and I hate myself for it. You know, it's, well, yeah, but you're not going to be the same kind of old white man. No, either. I'm not. You're no, just, I'm not. Just, you can't be right. As That's evidence of this conversation, right? I mean, the, you know, the first step to, you know, solving your problem is recognizing you have a problem. Right. It's a, <laughs> and, it's and AA. Want, it's like, right. And I don't think, I mean, I don't think that white people should feel guilty per se. Do you know what I mean? Especially those that are, I mean, just, you shouldn't have any general guilt. 
I think there needs to be, and I don't want your guilt as a black person. No, I, I think it's more embarrassment than it is guilt, you know, because, yeah. you know, well, birds of a feather flock together and you think to yourself, you know, these are my dad's friends, you know, and, and yeah. I really kind of used to like him. And now, you know, now I don't know if I do sometimes. Sure. And I think we all feel that way sometimes about yeah. our folks, friends for various reasons, you know, and yeah. I think black people, I mean, all we want is a respect and to be treated um, equally and with respect, you know, I don't need right. to be your best friend, right? Do you know what I mean? but I right. need to have the same opportunities and access. And I need you to recognize that those have not been available to me and to my people for hundreds of years in this country. Right. And that well, I'm not making this up. Like, you know, it's not just because I'm lazy that I can't do whatever. Do you know what I mean? It's right. not, that you can't say that black wealth is so low because black people are lazy. No. If right. you look at the root causes of it, they've not had any property. And right. any property they had, for the most part, were in economically depressed areas, which were part of redlining. So they weren't <laughs> able to build the same sort of wealth. Going back to your, um, the, you know, the, uh, the recession of 2008, a lot of black areas that had those subprime, subprime loans, mm -hmm. they, people were foreclosed on, lost their homes lost right. any wealth that they would have because property is how we transfer wealth the most in this country. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then you have corporations that came in and bought all those houses for a dime. And now people are paying exorbitant rent on houses that right. they own and they're not building any equity. So, and, and the thing is with, with understanding place. So like I, I understand place well enough that I know that when a, a person or a group of people are rooted right in place and and they have family and they have love and they have identity in the space and there's an ethic where they where they um you know where they feel secure and they have a job and they've had spiritual moments i know that when somebody has been in that environment for a very long time the difference between somebody who's out of place is a successful person and a person who is just being built to fail so here we are in 2008 and there's groups of people starting to feel that American dream for the first time and build some of that security and it's ripped right out from underneath them. Mm -hmm. But it goes back to that like whole systemic racism. That's it's like, it's not just in the people walking around on the streets. It's embedded in our laws. It's embedded in our norms. It's embedded sure, in, sure. well, I, I mean, I think that goes back even to some of the police problems. It's like, um, we do make assumptions, you know, my boys pay higher insurance because they're boys, right? Correct. We, Correct. We, make, we base lots of things on profiling. Um, right. I had fear, even though I have privilege, I still had fear of things as a dad, right? That makes me empathetic when I hear the stories of um, women like yourself who have young men and say, and have to give them lectures. You know, Correct. when you go out with a cop, pulls you over, put your hands on the wheel and do what you're told. You know, mm -hmm. I had boys and it was like, look, I've seen a lot of things go wrong with young couples. And if you get into an intimate relationship and there's maybe a little bit of alcohol involved and the next day she says that it's your fault, you have to realize that because you are a boy, it is assumed that it's your fault. Right. And I had to have serious heart to heart conversations because I was really concerned Yep. on many, many le levels, you know, right. um, and that is my anxiety and concern. And I am a man of privilege. I, I'm aware of that. Right. Right. I can't imagine. I can't imagine what a parent feels like who is in an urban setting, who has just about all the odds against them. Um, 
including race, including socioeconomic. They're trying to raise a child. They love their child the exact same way I love my child. But the hurdles that they have to get through and, and the tools that they're given to do it with. Yep. Did, did you have to have serious questions like that with your son? Yeah, I mean, well, definitely I had question, conversations with him about um, sex and alcohol, you know. Yeah. And I actually grabbed almost all of his friends and had the same conversation. <laughs> didn't want to. Again, for the very same reason. I'm like, dudes, you cannot have sex and introduce alcohol ever. Right. Right. Ever. And it's just right. Ever. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter ever. You drinking, no sex, sex, no drinking. <laughs> right. You just can't right. do it. It's and it's like as much as it might cause my kids problems. Um, it's going to cause a poor white person a whole different level of problems. And it's going to call a black person, cause a black person a whole different level of problems. They will literally, like the whole innocent until proven guilty is crap in, in many of these situations. And it's like they will literally have to prove harder their innocence. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the, the best thing to do is not do it. And then you're like, well, sorry for taking away your college years or whatever, you know, because. Yeah. But it's, it's a reality. You put yourself yeah. at risk if you drink and have sex. The end. You can take the risk, but you're at risk. Right. It's like it's like, it, and really, what it boils down to, it's like, oh, please, just have her be pregnant and not a jerk, <laughs> right? It's like I would take pregnancy over finger pointing any day of the week. Right. And what I when I told college women is, I wouldn't take a drink from anybody I didn't know when I'm in college. Yeah. You know, especially at you know the Christian institution we were at, a lot of our um, young people come to college with no drinking experience, right? And no fundamental under because their folks don't drink, so they don't understand the difference between the alcohol content of a shot glass and a beer, right? Oh, it was right. just a little bitty drink. I'm like, sweetie girl, you're oh. one, you know, <laughs> wet. You can't do two, three shots. That's going to jack you up. You would have been better to grab a beer and just nurse it. You know what I mean? Slow sip it. Yeah. Slow sip and it, <laughs> then those, and those are not the conversations that parents are having. No. Uh, not in it, not in a conservative Christian environment. Right. right. So you've got to tell, you know, so I tell the girls, some dude wants to give you something to drink. I don't care who he is. I don't care who he is. Right. I don't care if he's the pastor's son. I don't care. Oh, who he is. yeah. You don't want to be, and again, you drink, you put yourself at risk. Oh, he's a nice guy. I don't know. Right. Do I, We're so all nice people. It's, it's on, it's on, it's on, again, and I, you know, guys are at risk and girls are at risk. Right. With, with um, alcohol. Alcohol is, I think, one of the worst drugs. Really? And it's just the availability of it and the everything else. It's legal. It's easily and readily available. And what it does to um, your inhibitions and your self sense of self-control um, yeah. is, is, is frightening. And I've seen mm. firsthand the effects of um, sexual assault, sexual misconduct on both on men and women. So, yeah. Right. And so like, and those were real conversations you had to have with people because that was your role at yep. the university. And the, the bottom line is you and I both know that, it doesn't matter who's at fault. There's two lives that are probably screwed up. Correct. Correct. Oh boy. Yep. So are there solutions here? Like, do we just need like a couple of generations to die and eventually this, because I get into these philosophical debates with the pastor friend of mine and he generally says, 
we're all screwed up because of sin and that's just the way it is. And I have different metaphysical beliefs and, and I'm like, no, actually, I don't want to be, you know, a Pollyanna, but 200 years ago, the way our society treated each other is different than 100 years ago, you know, and then it is different than it was in the 1960s. And I know that it's a really slow progress, but if I look back at humankind, I feel like generally we are becoming less crappy. My concern is, is it gonna happen quick enough before we have another civil war? Or, I mean, right now there's like, people have taken over whole blocks of um, Seattle and they're just not even letting the police in. I mean, it's like, do we have time? I don't think so, Garth. I mean, I'm probably I'm probably fairly pessimistic right now. Um, good. I think I think I'm we all have a pretty good place to be pessimistic right now. I I again, you know, there's the fear of the other that is rampant right now in this country, um, and you know, we see uh, broadly speaking, you know, white people fearing immigrants and black yeah. people that they're going to take away the world that they want to have because it doesn't exist anymore. Right. Um, And, you know, I think racism is just going to play itself out in different ways. So as long as we have the way our economy and the way our country is structured with primarily white men running everything, Mm -hmm. there will not be significant change. So white men run our government, um, our boards of directors of major corporations. Mm our uh, local law enforcement agencies. So some of that is changing. And that's why certain groups of people are working so hard to suppress vote, the vote. I understand that. Yeah. yeah, Because the only, only way to make change happen is to vote. But, you know, for instance, I'm concerned and I'm probably not alone that um, I'm really worried about our election in November. I don't, no matter, no matter how, what the outcome, Okay, look at both. There's only two outcomes. Two people are going to be running. One will win and one will lose. Right. I see major civil unrest. So do I. I, I don't see our current president um, graciously walking out the door the way no. others have done before. No. Um, and I don't see our, I don't think our country can handle four more years of the current administration. I'm trying to figure out how we're going to get between here and November. Because, I mean, there's been things that have happened in just today's news that gets me so shook and so concerned about our Constitution and, and, and how, how and who is, is running our country that it just makes me go, are we going to make it to that point? Because the only way to, to really settle down the country is for the leader to pull back and go, okay, everybody calm down. You know, look, let's just be nice and fair. Let's work through this. Let's make some change. Let's use this as, and instead he's flipping it around and he's being bombastic. And it's like, dude, you do realize that de-escalation, which we expect the police to use. And when they don't, it turns into what we're dealing with right now is the de-escalation that you need to be using right now that you're not, you are doing what is pissing people off on the small scale. You're now doing it on, on the large scale. Well, yeah, I mean, he, and there's the no other, and this is gonna this is gonna be really pessimistic. And I hope not too many people listen to this that are my clients and think I'm a complete raging a hole. Um, but again, I've gone into these conversations purposeful, and I've said to myself, you know, if I lose a job or two, such as life, I think it's a conversation that we all need to have. And I would rather lose a couple of jobs than have to pick up, a, you know, and 
and see my kids go to war or something stupid like that, right? Um, but the, the pessimistic thing that I see is it's not just one man in the office. Um, it's a 43% it's a of our country that supports him. It's that is, so it's like if, if it was just one man, that would be one thing, right? But just like you said, it doesn't matter who wins or loses, civil unrest is a very good likelihood. And it's because there's 43% of the country who does feel, and I don't know why they feel what they feel. Um, they feel attacked. They feel like they've lost their jobs. They feel entitled. Um, I feel like they've got a misunderstanding. I've been getting into it with a couple of guys on Facebook recently. And it's like, I feel like there's a misunderstanding about women's rights. There's a misunderstanding and they put metaphysics behind that and all of a sudden justify craziness. Um, there's, there's a misunderstanding of welfare and how to lift up segments of the population. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, I've, if there's a hierarchy in our country, this, you're really going to want to kick me in the throat right now. But if there's a hierarchy in our country, black women are pretty low on the list. Oh, yeah. There's no question. Actually, I would say that black women are on the bottom. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Because yep. it's, it's, you know, because if, if white has privilege over white men have privilege over black men, black men have privilege over black women. And the culture in that is such that it's just not that healthy at times. Right. However, however, I do, I do have a theory after watching my sister. So my sister lives in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. Her son's best friend's mom uh, was a Baltimore cop and was killed in action. Oh, wow. And her, so her son's best friend was raised by his grandparents and she got to be very good friends with him. And it seems like, and, and it seems like and we could even see it at Andrews University where there's like, if, if there is a couple, you know, the black woman gets left with the kid if the father leaves, right? Um, she usually scrambles a little bit and goes and gets a job. And it's starting to look like because the because the black woman is being left at the bottom so much she's picking herself up and it seems like they're the ones that are going to college because they don't have the opportunity to be privileged you know right. they're the ones who are fighting for themselves and raising their kids in spite of things right. you know i don't wonder if if we if the world doesn't implode in the next 9 months if in if in 50 years some of this will flip around because many of us have sat on our lollies while there's a demographic, maybe the yeah. black woman who has said, I just don't have the luxury of being privileged and I've got to hustle and right. I got to go to school. And, you, and, you, and you'll see that. Yeah. I mean, education rates and I haven't researched it. So it's all anecdotal, but I do think black women are getting JDs and MDs yeah. and getting yeah. master's degrees and PhDs. And so you'll see a lot of black women going to school. So, and working hard. And that's good for them because, well, because of a lot of things, because yep. they're not going to get the breaks and they got to give themselves the breaks. And, yep. it, and, and I'm not saying that's fair. I'm just saying it's it the reality. It is. It right. Is the, it, is, it is. We have to work twice as hard to get the same recognition. I'm interviewing another friend in another week or two, and he's been talking about that a little bit, um, where from an early age as a black man, he says he was told, you know, if you want the grades, if you want the education, you're going to have to work twice as hard as everybody else in the class. Just like I tell my boys, it will be your fault if somebody says that it was, you know, un, um, that there was no consent, right? Um, 
there are others in this country, black men and black women who are being told in an early age, even if they're from a uh, socioeconomically advanced household, they're being told, if you want to make it, you're going to have to work twice as hard. So did you, do you feel like you had to work twice as hard or do you feel like you were in a place that, um, I, I don't think, like I said, I think when I was doing my, um, education, you know, my undergrad, because I think of my West Indian slash British mm-hmm. mentality, mm-hmm. I just did what I needed to do. So yeah. I, I didn't have any consciousness that I was being treated differently because I was black. Um, at that stage of my life. Um, it wasn't until I started working. I mean, I had a couple instances where, where um, you know, I went to a friend's house, a white friend's house in college. I mean, in high school, rather, walked into her house and her dad yells, you know, what's that nigger doing here? You, you know? gotta be freaking kidding me. No, that was in high school. It's my senior year in high school. Good friend of mine. And she's oh, let's go to my house. Okay, fine. Just never met her dad before. And clearly he wasn't happy to do that. So we walked out, she started sobbing. I'm like, Oh, well, he's an asshole and move on. Right. Um, so I've had instances like that, but I never internalized. They weren't part of my internal self. Right. And, and they weren't part of your daily routine and they weren't part of your personal progress. Correct. Yeah. And it wasn't until, you know, when I started working that, for the most part, I think I had a lot of privilege. I mean, I remember having conversations with uh, a colleague, not over the phone, who was in a different location. Um, lots of friendly give back and forth. And then he came to the Chicago office. I met him in person and his face just dropped. Right. <laughs> in my mind, I'm laughing. I'm like, oh yeah, dude, I'm black. <laughs> yeah. And, and, then the <laughs> and then the collegial, you know, conversation just evaporated after that. Um, you know, it's, it's the, I think it's that microaggression that triggers me yes. more than anything. I was just saying, black people are, you just deal with microaggression from, you just deal, it's all the time and you just ignore it for the most part. But I think it, you, you know what though, I think, I think you ignore it, but I, but I don't question having studied people enough to know that it still chips away oh, at your right. emotions. It still builds an environment where you don't feel like you can be as much on your sleeve, you know, and it's still harmful, you know, and yeah. unnecessary. There's a, there's a culmination, you know, of it's an effective buildup over time. And I think that's what you're seeing right now. People are like, look, we've had to put up with microaggressions. We've had to put up all kinds of crap. We cannot put up with being killed by cops anymore. And no. that's what you're saying. We just, you just can't take it anymore. Well, I'm a white guy and I'm afraid of the police. I'll be perfectly honest. I think the police have moved beyond serve and protect. Um, and I can't imagine, well, I know that my boys who went, um, uh, went to St. Joe, they understand that like, if you're a young man driving around St. Joe at 11 o'clock on a Friday night, there's a very good chance you're going to get pulled over. You will be black or white. Right. And it's just, it's just a hierarchy. Gar's not going to get pulled over. His boys are going to get pulled over. If you're a a young black man, you're going to get pulled over and asked where you're going. And it's like, well, what it, what's it your business, bro? You know, it's, it's gotten a little out of control, but like I've heard microaggression from coworkers who were highly educated PhDs speaking of somebody similar to you. Cause the university has a lot of us that are like, we all talk the same, even though we come from a bunch of different countries because we're educated people. Right. Right, right. And, and his comments of, um, uh, she's very well-spoken, you know, (laughs) And right immediately you're like, dude, 
Do you read books seriously? Do you get out at all? Are you no. stuck in your own little world? And by the way, none of us needed to know that, you know, and it's just, and it just, and the, the really frustrating thing is, is that there's very little you can do against that. You can look at them and go, you're a complete a-hole and walk out and probably you're going to get in trouble or you can be like, that's unnecessary. And they're going to go, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And if you go up to the third floor and we've all had run-ins with the third floor and you say, this is what they said, you get blown off and you get blown off and you get blown off and you get blown off until, until it is a catastrophe. And I really don't think it needs to get to be a catastrophe. Yeah. Well, if you'll notice, um, in the faculty and staff at the university, there are, and maybe this has changed, but there are very few black American males. Most of the yes. black males are West Indian or African. Yes. They're not American. Right. And there's a reason for that. So, so that's just another layer of privilege. Yep. Yep. Well, now, we can wrap this up with me feeling as pessimistic as you. I'm, and... I'm so sorry. I'm, no. I'm I just want to say, Garth, I mean, I mean, I'm encouraged by um, white friends and such as yourself that are really interested in having a dialogue and understanding um, and even understanding your own privileges and your own biases, which we all have yeah. Yeah. and are willing to be open-minded about it. But I'm equally dismayed by the number of people who have just put their crap right out on the street now in full display with with the flag on it and so i that's and so going back I'm to the in right. many respects but i i'm not sure what it's going to take so it is it is a, a, a vast polarization i teach some things in my class i have an environmental leadership class and one of the things i teach is implicit bias because I was so floored at what an a-hole I was, even though I really didn't want to be an a-hole because mm -hmm. of the fact that we are conditioned for this. Right. And I do weird things like I will take, um, so in one of my classes, after they take the implicit bias test, I come in with some slides of the world map and I've flipped it, I've rotated it in, in um, um, you know, Adobe Acrobat or whatever. So that up is down and down is up, right? I'm mm -hmm. like, what is this? They're like, it's the earth. I'm like, yeah, but why is up, up and down? And, and I'm like, do you realize what you say in your language? You know, I'm feeling up today. Don't get down, you know, and, and what are the color lines? You know, north of the equator are white, south of the equator, it's darker, you know? Yeah, well, it's a dark moment when you talk like that, you know? And it's like, it's like I don't think people realize how embedded it is in our every piece, you know? Absolutely. And, it's a and, dark movie. It's a dark movie. I know, but they'll. But if we shed some light on it, it'll be okay. Absolutely. There you go. Yeah. yeah. But so, you know, we can lift ourselves up and not get down. And right. Yeah. The only people that get it past there are the Australians. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. Although, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, they do. They. I guess they get a pass there. Right. Lucky they them. They were the criminals that turned into the less criminal country. Absolutely. Well, it's, um, I have students walk out of that class with their mind blown and definitely think that I'm putting them, that I'm just putting one over on them. And it's like, they're just like some from like conservative worlds are just like, dude, you're just making this stuff up. And I'm like, no, I'm not making it up. You've got to, you have got to see beyond your own bias and you've got to like see the meaning behind the meaning right. of what we do on a daily basis. Right. Oh, it blows my mind. Listen, 
we've already taken too much time and it was so informative. I'm, I'm not kidding you. Right off the bat, you gave me information that I've never heard before and that's exactly why I wanted to talk to you. You're awesome. Thanks, Garth. It's good to chat with you. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it too. We'll have to do it again sometime. Absolutely. Would love to. And how about that, my listening friends? This will not be our last time we explore Place Through Diverse Eyes. It's quite apparent that it's a valuable, important dialogue to have within our society. Um, but I do feel that it was a very informative spot to begin. So, Debbie, thank you for sharing your wisdom and experiences. And to the rest of you listening, thank you for listening. I would be remiss not to thank our team at Rootbound for their continued support of Lonnie and my projects. Please share if you enjoyed yourself and plan to come back for more. But don't go away mad. Just go away. Because every little thing is going to be alright.